Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. This is my first actual chance to welcome you to 2022. Myself, anyway. Thanks so much to Seth and Andrew for sitting in the hot seat to kick off this year. Great to hear from both of you, outside of voicing our dark tales, of course. Tonight's episode is number 520. And aside from offering up a host of hair-raising horrors for your ears, this episode is special for another reason. Let me do some math. With one show a week, and 52 weeks in a year, that means tonight marks the start of our 10th year as a podcast. 
With our 500th episode festivities still fairly fresh in the rear view, we've elected not to make such a big deal about this milestone, but it's still a pretty impressive one nonetheless. For now, I'd just like to say thanks for 10 terrifying years. Here's looking forward to 10 more. And now, the thing that's brought us all together in the first place. Our fiction. Our first story tonight comes from Emily Henry Burnham. Emily Burnham is a creative writer living in Bend, Oregon, but originally from Herefordshire, England. She has a master's degree in journalism and more than 15 years of experience as a multimedia reporter, columnist, and editor with a penchant for stories of redemption and resiliency. Her fiction work tells imaginative tales of dark fantasy and magical realism, exploring themes of trauma, beauty, identity, and mortality. Although she is, as yet, officially unpublished, her flash horror story, The Dog, was featured in the local newspaper, The Bend Bulletin, and she recently won a notable story, Thinkerbeat Award, for a short story submission to Unreal Magazine. She is racking up second-round rejections and continues to write with abandon. Children of the Night, join me for Emily Henry Burnham's Deep Roots, a Tales to Terrify original. Tangled in the shrubbery outside Dean Castle's kitchen window was a small white hat. It was the sort of hat a young girl might wear to church on this fine Easter morning, with spring newly sprung and a robin's egg sky. Dean went into the backyard with his cup of coffee and retrieved the hat from the thorny green leaves of the bush. He felt the warmth of the sun on his back and thought it might be a busy day for the manor house and its treasured hedge. When the sun rose warm and steady, Children veered from the village green through the shadowy woodland that marked castle property and stepped onto manor house grounds, right in view of Dean's kitchen window and what lay beneath. It was a neatly trimmed shrubbery, with branches and foliage compacted into a drawn-out rectangle that ran along the east side of the manor house. The green of its leaves was bright and sickly, like mucus during the onset of a cold. It never grew ragged, and never flaunted a stray limb, even though it remained a virgin to the shears raw blade. Dean took the hat back inside through the kitchen, opened the small door to the basement, walked carefully down the steps in the dim light of the single bare bulb, and placed the hat on a shelf next to a number of other child-sized clothing items and accessories. A pink t-shirt. A green and red spotted sock. A pair of blue shorts. The shelf was becoming rather full, and would be tumbling over itself by the end of summer, 
before the winter hiatus slowed inventory. It would soon be time to put up another shelf, responsibility that went back generations in the Castle family, and one which Dean's own children would someday inherit. On display around the room was hundreds of years of children's fashion, like a museum of childhood past. The furthest shelf, the first shelf ever erected, still clasping its 17th century copper hinges, sat mostly in darkness. Only the stray finger of a yellowing glove and the rim of a lace cap caught the light. Dean squinted into the shadows to see the item deepest in the darkness. A brown baby's bonnet, and the very first item in the collection, a small green velvet slipper. Dean stared at the slipper and imagined its slight metal heel clicking onto the wood as some great-great-grandfather or grandmother castle placed it onto the then-empty shelf. Dean ascended the basement stairs and closed the door behind him. He poured the rest of his cold coffee down the kitchen sink and put his mug in the dishwasher. The squealing of the rusty garden gate made Dean look up through the window and quickly pull the lace curtains together to hide his face. It was a little boy, perhaps eight or nine years old, wearing a black baseball cap, dirty jeans, and a red hoodie that stood out starkly against the wall of dark trees behind him. He carried a skateboard and, like all the children who came through the gate, had his face turned toward the kitchen window, or rather, just below it. With wide eyes, the boy walked slowly and surely across the garden. The sky had become a pale gray, threatening rain. Dean wondered what it was that they heard. Perhaps their own whispered names. Perhaps the siren song of something ancient and magnetic, with its own gravitational pull that turned the earth to a slope and brought the children sliding towards it. Whatever it was, Dean had never heard it. None of the members of the castle family had. His grandmother called it the caretaker's immunity. Children of castle blood would always be safe, as long as the shelves kept filling with those talismans of protection. Gifts from the beast below. Assurances of prosperity and longevity, from which they had all benefited. Dean retreated to the study with his newspaper and lit a fire in the hearth. The early spring chill had crept into the house and into his bones. Soon, the sky would open and release itself upon the world. The thorny, shining leaves of the bush in front of the kitchen window would glisten with wet, and it would grow. Not taller or wider. It had remained the same size for hundreds of years, according to Castle family lore. But deeper and deeper. The roots traveled down into the darkest place of the earth, and beyond, into somewhere else. Somewhere where all the children would go. Down, down, down. The insatiable appetite of the creature older than time, whispering through leaves and vines to be fed. Dean finished the newspaper, folded it in half, and threw it into the fire. The flames leapt 
providing a momentary relief from the cold inside his skin. He wrapped his arms around himself and headed back to the kitchen. It was raining now. The sky outside the kitchen window was almost black with water-sodden clouds. Dean peered out at the shrubbery and saw a beacon of red entangled within. He retrieved an umbrella from the mudroom and went outside to extract the newest addition to the basement's exhibit. When he pulled it out, the hoodie was still warm from the boy's body, which was nowhere to be found. That was Emily Henry Burnham's Deep Roots, as read by Austin Stern. Austin Stern is a content creator, narrator, and musician from southern New Mexico, with a small YouTube channel and podcast of his own called Eerie. Lover of cats, coffee, and all things creepy, he is honored to be here to read for you all. Thank you, Austin. Our second tale tonight comes from Ash Caballero. Ash Caballero is working on a young adult horror trilogy and definitely not playing a video game instead. You can find her on Twitter at HalfDeads. Listen with me, children of the night, to Ash Caballero's Feuerhund, a Tales to Terrify original. I climb after Zeke into the old abandoned hearse, or as we school dropouts use it, the communal hangout parked at the edge of nowhere road. At night, no good like Zeke and me gather like soldiers in a bunker here. Ditch hormone-driven wars we've started with each other once that back door creaks shut. Get along well enough to get high or drunk together. Grab each other by the ear to spread fucked-up horror stories one hot breath at a time. Cause how else are we gonna have fun in this town besides her to scare each other? Take a seat. Zeke shoves me, as if it's in order. I got a story to tell. Between us, there are cigarette butts, empty bottles, and wooden splinters where there used to be a coffin. Needles and bandages that reek of infected wounds. But mostly... There's hate. Hate, cause what else is there when you're brothers? When 18 years ago we clawed, kicked, and screamed out of the womb at the same time, fought for the same air, 
Zeke's told every other no good and their grandmother that he's firstborn twin by a minute, that I've always been second best. English, the only class he didn't fail, he's always been a storyteller, a liar. There's this dog from hell. Zeke pulls a zippo and joint from his jeans pocket, lights up. Foyahund, he calls it, smoke whirling round his face, indistinguishable from my own. Rotten black fur, blood-dripping snout, burning red eyes. Think about its eyes, Zack. Foyahund to see us for who we are. Every sin we ever committed. Attack whoever deserves it more. All we have to do is a summoning ritual. I'll lie. I punch him and take the joint for myself. Take a hit. Our eyes fog. Else you'd be ripped to pieces. I'm a saint compared to Zeke. Yesterday, during my midday drowse, he set my bed on fire. Woke hung over, the flames blanketing me, to him snickering while I rolled across my room before the alcohol in me caught. I'm into tricks much as him, planting tacks in his boots when he's not wearing them, you know, beheading his pet snake, leaving a nasty surprise in his terrarium. But aiming to kill your own brother's a filthier thing, even if you hate him. I'll never cross that line. I'm not Zeke. You're worse, Zack. Zeke grabs a joint from me as if reading my mind. Worse for pretending you're better than the rest of us, than me. We do the ritual you'll see, foil hunter see, grind you down like a doggy bone. I won't have to do a thing, he inhales. Won't have to hurt you at all. He blows smoke at me, aggravation clouding my judgment. No tricks? I make him swear as if I can trust him. No tricks. Zeke smiles, line between his lips razor thin. Honorable like in agreement, he puts out what's left of the joint. We carry out the ritual as he commands, unclip pocket knives from our jeans pockets, slit our palms, mix our blood in the first handshake of our life, squeezing each other's fingers too hard we whistle a supposed tune to call good old infernal Fido to our trash end of earth. Lips unpuckering, fear turns my face ugly, cause I smell it. Rank as decayed meat, as roadkill long dead, doused in gasoline. Holy shit, you actually fell for it. Zeke laughs till it hurts. It's just a story. Foyhun's not real, it... His grip tightens. His nostrils flare. He smells it, too. It's not... Like a bomb going off the ground outside the hearse explodes. Something claws its way up from the rubble. Growls. Strikes our bunker on flat tires to get in. Over and over, it growls. Rocks us in bombardment. Brains knocked round our skulls, heat swells between my ears. Heavy metal blares to life on the radio, no key in the ignition. Cigarette butts bounce, combust in midair. Needles fly. Empty bottles ricochet off the vandalized interior. Graffiti left behind by other no-goods lighting up, ink dripping like lava. Through it all, I grip my pocket knife. Head banging, body temperature rising, heart beating faster than the music. I go to scream, but can't even breathe. Fuck, fuck! Zeke finds his voice, his pupils dilated, trying to take in light, 
to take in whatever bad trip this has got to be. It bashes the hearse, real as anything. The back door creaks open, falls off. Dizzy, drenched in sweat, we look out of the vehicle. Looking in at us is a dog, but wrong. Evil hunched on four legs, looming over us yet, tail whipping, teeth big and sharp as pocket knives, jowls drooling, fur buzzing with flies, my lungs wheezing at the stench. Eyes, horribly red and burning its eyes, burning at my innards, looking round the deepest, wormiest grounds of my being, unburying every sin, seeing me. I mean, really seeing me in a way I don't care for. Zeke stiff as a corpse beside me, as trapped under the weight of its glare, until it roars, unleashing fire from its throat, torching us, our skin blisters in the blast, our vocal cords shred with screams, radio dying in sparks, I think on my toes. I stab Zeke. Rip my pocket knife from his back, shove him toward the hell dog and offering. Zeke tumbles to the open end of the vehicle, holding himself sick, real foggy-eyed like he can't believe none of this. He calls me a filthy tricker like he doesn't deserve it. Another growl and the devil pooch jumps into the vehicle. I slam my eyes closed, pocket knife falling from my trembling hand. Teeth snap, cries gurgle. Bones crack crunch. When I open my eyes, there's no Zeke. Only his blood splattered everywhere. Only laughter escaping me. Only it sniffs, sniffs, and turns to me, looking over my face, same as Zeke's was, licking its blade teeth unfinished. No. I crawl backwards into the hearse, grabbing at a broken bottle to defend myself, the shard of glass feeling tinier and tinier in my hand as red eyes burn near me. I'm not him, I say. But Foyahun lunges, because maybe I am. That was Ash Caballero's Feuerhund, as read by J.K. Shepler. J.K. Shepler was born in Texas and raised in Northern California among the rolling hills of the Coast Range and the oaks of the Gold Country. He returned to Texas for secondary and post-secondary education, attended the University of Houston, and someone decided to give him a Bachelor of Science with highest honors in anthropology. He was hyped to pursue a master's degree in experimental archaeology at Exeter, but decided to retire, thus sparing the British from his accents. He is a two-stripe brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu under Tony Torres Aponte, and haunts various local museums where he sometimes contributes to historical exhibitions or simply loiters. He surfs, throws knives, and scratches out some visual art. He's slated to finish some creative projects sometime in this decade, including illustrating a children's book, and if he ever wakes up, a bunch of other stuff. 
He sometimes sells fine woolen scarves and old ties. And somewhere, people buy his t-shirt designs and photographs. He <clears throat> rarely pens brief movie reviews, which are written in some sort of bizarre dialect at downthemoviehole.blogspot.com. Mr. Shepler has opened for major touring acts in various bands, produced music videos, acted, and has been a general pain in the backside. He is fortunate to be the son of artist-educator parents, and he gives thanks. His parents gave him love and taught him to love learning and to be like the warriors and renaissance men and women of old. Artistic, creative, thoughtful, honorable, capable, and well-armed. Thank you, JK. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Our final tale tonight comes from Kevin Brown. Kevin Brown has published two short story collections, Death Roll and Ink on Wood, and has had fiction nonfiction, and poetry published in over 200 literary journals, magazines, and anthologies. He won numerous writing competitions and was nominated for multiple prizes and awards, including three pushcart prizes. He co-wrote the film Living Dark, the story of Ted the Caver, that won a Moondance Film Festival award and was sold to New Films International. Listen with me, children of the night. To Kevin Brown's Somewhere, Anywhere. 
first published in the Night Terrors Anthology, 2010. a.m. Skylar Mosley gunned the throttle on his old man's fishing boat, and the nose lifted high off the dark water, the current splitting white around the aluminum body. Squinting, he snaked around the bends of the river, watching the dark treetops limbed ahead. His earlobes were red and stinging, his eyes watered in the cold push of air. An hour ago, he'd snuck out dressed in layers of hunting clothes and hitched the boat to the pickup. It was his dad's truck and boat, and Skyler wasn't allowed to take them out alone. But he'd decided to after his dad came home tanked and smelling not like his mom's perfume. They'd yelled and cried and slammed things until he passed out, and she went to the motor in motel. This had been happening more and more, and Skyler figured that if they could have their places to go, so could he. Skyler watched the snow-splotched banks slide by felt the foamy spray of water on the backs of his hands like ice needles. He bit down hard, and his jaw squared off and popped. He was sick of the liquor and women, the fighting and cruelty. Lately, he wondered what was going on in his old man's mind when he slammed tools in the garage, when he stabbed food on his plate as if it were alive, shoveling it in his mouth faster than he could chew and swallow. Always looking down or to the side, answering questions in grunts or nods. He wondered where that anger had come from, and how far it was going to go. Skylar eased off the throttle and angled the boat toward a fallen cedar near the bank. His dad had never taken him upriver this far, and the land felt foreign and undiscovered. He'd heard game ran wild in this area because few people hunted it. If you were lucky enough to bag a good-sized deer, getting it back would be a chore and most folks didn't bother. But he figured he'd cross that bridge if and when he came to it. He'd also heard stories of these woods being haunted. It was where that family, the Otises, had supposedly lived, where, if you believe the tales, they were murdered, burned alive one at a time, son and daughter first, and according to the older folks in town, where the house stands to this day, the four charred spots still burned into the floorboards. Skylar stepped onto the muddy bank bottom and tied the boat off, shouldered his .30-06 and looked around, his breath ghosting out white. Currents rolled and flecked in the river, but everything else was a numb silence. He climbed the bank by the jutting tree roots and stepped into the woods, sinking calf high in the snow. He felt oddly comfortable as if the land was closing its arms around him, pulling him in a hug to its breast. 6.40 a.m. Nature began to form and take shape with the light. 
the world one large Polaroid being shaken until it developed. The brush came alive, rattling. Twigs snapped. Parts of dead trees cracked off and popped the snow. It seemed the lighter it got, the louder. And colder. Skylar sat on a dark tree root crooked out of the snow like a burned elbow. The wind seemed to come from all directions, chipping away at his face and neck. A few feathering snowflakes had turned into a sideways flurry, and it was hard to see more than thirty yards out. The snow's surface was smooth as white cake icing. He flipped his collar up and slid his hands under his armpits, balancing the rifle in his lap. He imagined his mom shifting and tossing under worn motel sheets, her face clenched in the middle, eyes red and raw, and his dad still sprawled sideways on the bed, half-dressed and snoring. He couldn't understand why his father continued to stray off the straight, simple road he and Skylar's mom had been on for 21 years, why he took highways and side roads headed in every direction but home. He thought about their vacation a year ago. It was the last great time he could remember them having together. They'd gone to Clearwater, Florida, and every day they ate at a different seafood restaurant. He and his dad played frisbee on the beach, tossed hunks of bread in the air for the screeching seagulls to dive and catch, and watched the sun deflate into the horizon, where it watered off and on to somewhere, anywhere. In beach chairs behind him, his mom and dad sipped margaritas and laughed and kissed, while Skylar sat in the surf, curling his toes in the warm, wet sand the water foaming in and over and around him, then sliding metallic back into the sea. He shifted on the route, looked out ahead, and thought about that old house. If it was really out here somewhere, all decayed and folding in on itself, animal tracks and wads of shit everywhere, he wondered what direction it was supposed to be in, if he was close. The way he'd heard it, the Otises lived back here in the 30s, People called them river rats because they lived on what they took from the river. Some claimed to have seen them occasionally, running trot lines and barrel nets for fish and turtles. They were supposed to be inbred and ravaged by syphilis, disfigured by shankers and patchy hair, pegged and notched screwdriver teeth, brain disorders. Story goes, they took in a couple of guys lost in the woods one night. What they didn't know was these guys had robbed and killed a goods store owner 20 miles north and took to the woods. They fed them, gave them a change of clothes, a bed for the night. And sometime the next morning... Skylar looked around, scanning the thickets and bottoms. He wondered if years ago, killers had actually come through this exact area, maybe rested on this same elbow route. If they saw a chimney smoke mouse-tailing above the trees... Faint candlelight in the windows like eyes. He wondered if all those years ago, you could smell burnt flesh in the air. Blood and charred hair in the leaves. He figured not, because he'd also heard the Otises weren't fried like witches, that they'd just moved on farther upriver where the fish were more abundant. Lived and died the way most people lived and died, uneventfully. Some swear they never even existed. To his left, there was a loud crack in the underbrush, and he jerked around, leaned forward and raised his rifle. Another snap, and he saw it. A jackrabbit working its nose up in the air, ears twitching. It spun and sputtered into the tangle, and Skylar eased his gun back across his lap, wiped his nose with the back of his hand. He glanced to his right and nearly fell backward off the route. 
Standing there, 40 yards out and staring at him, was a large, wide-racked buck. It had never made a sound, just appeared out of nowhere like a ghost. 6.45 a.m. Skyler whipped his gun up as the buck turned to bolt. He squinted, threaded the bead on his shoulder, and fired. 6.46 a.m. Blood was everywhere. Standing where the deer had been, breathing heavy, he could still hear it bouncing through the thicket ahead. He wasn't sure where he hit him, but it was deep enough. Thick ropes of blood trailed off from where he stood, toward the sounds the deer was making. Skylar ate a handful of snow, pinched his collar, and fanned his shirt. He looked back in the direction he'd come from, toward the river. Large foot divots in the snow like candle holes and cake frosting. He turned back toward the unseen world snapping and popping and dying ahead. He started after it. 8.15 a.m. Skyler leaned over, hands on his knees, trying to catch his breath. His lungs felt scrubbed raw inside and he coughed and spat. He'd come a ways, the deep snow hampering his movements. Several times he thought he'd lost the trail and was about to turn back when a slash of red on a tree or a glob in the snow pulled him along. He'd been through a rotten cane patch woven with vines of briars, and farther, until looking back, the black oaks and cedar trees looked like walls, like jaws closing out the open world forever. Still coughing, Skylar yelled, Better be one big fucking deer! And his voice sounded small. He kept going, up the incline of a ridge, along its spine, down the slope, the snow sliding around him, and before he heard it, he almost ran right into it. He dropped to his knees, slipped his coat off, and clutched a tree trunk. Leaning forward, he drank handfuls of icy stream water that swirled by, dark as the trees, then disappeared around the bend. 8.23 a.m. Skyler wiped his mouth on his shirt sleeve and looked around. The trail picked up on the other side of the stream, and unless there was a narrower spot to cross, that was it. Curtain call. He was done. He leaned back down for another drink, and the small bank loosened and caved. He whimpered and slipped face forward toward the water. Never breaking grip with the tree, his body spun and his legs went in instead. He sunk gut deep, his feet hitting the bottom. As quickly as he went in, he grabbed the tree with his other hand and pulled himself out. The water had taken his breath, and his clothes were slick and shiny and clinging to his body as if they were melting. An hour later, Skylar's hands fluttered, his jaw quivered. He'd started back, following his own ghost of a trail, as the older tracks were disappearing, erased by the storm. He'd slid his coat on and jammed his hands under his armpits, carrying the rifle in his folded arms, but the shaking had intensified. His toes seemed to have disappeared a while back, and his pants were stiffening and freezing to his legs. He fell several times, and each fall he seemed to leave a little more of his energy, of himself, in the snow. He reached the cane patch and made his way in. He scanned the ground, the tracks barely imprints on the surface. He went left, lost the trail, turned back and followed the tracks he'd just made. The briars bit into his clothes, tore at his cheeks and ears. Cane sprung at his face, popping him in the forehead. He stumbled and regained balance, turned and went in any direction, clawing, trying to find some landmark that looked familiar. Please, he said, 
and he saw an opening ahead. He went toward it in a rush, the thorns ripping into him, and finally made it out of the tangle. He stopped, dropped to his knees. There was the stream, the bank caved in by the tree. He looked around, every thicket and stunted cedar, log and bush looked the same, black and white Xeroxed copies in all directions. He tried to stand and dropped his rifle, tripped and sunk. He slammed his fist into the ice and screamed, but it muffled in the flurry. The wind moaned around him. For some reason, he pictured his mom on the nights she waited up for his dad, her eyes rimmed in tears. Imagine the tacking of her wedding ring on the tabletop. And for the first time, he began to think he might die. Started to wonder if his death would somehow reunite his parents, maybe make them see what real unhappiness is. Through his tragedy, their marriage would live on, a sacrifice of him for the better them. He smiled and began to cry. Later, Skylar nestled between two oak logs, draped his coat over his legs, and closed his eyes. His hands trembled in a violent blur, and his lips had gone the color of veins under the skin. His eyelids bruised purple and as translucent as a baby bird's. He tried to listen for a passing boat, some sign that would show him the direction the river was in. Back to where his dad's boat was roped off and waiting to take him somewhere warm, to his family, his home. He was about to nod off when he heard a child's voice giggle and say, You dead? He opened his eyes. In front of him, a little girl was wrapped in a dirty brown coat, wearing yellow socks as mittens. He started to cry again. You ain't dead, she said. Tears slid off his cheeks and he shook his head no. She reached out and wrapped both hands around one of his, grunted and tugged. He winced, snakes of pain coiling through his legs. She tugged harder and said, Come on, silly. He shifted, and the cold around his joints seemed to crack and release. He staggered to his feet, a lap full of snow dusting down. She turned to go, still holding one of his hands, but he didn't move. Well, she said, you coming or ain't you? He took a step and fell. She helped him up, and he took another, then another his movements jerky and stilted. He stared at the back of her head, her dirty blonde curls floating in the wind. In a breathless fragment, he said, Where are we going? Not looking back, she giggled. Hey, he said. Do you know? Of course I do, silly, she said and giggled again. She stopped and pointed down the hill at a small, earthy-looking house. Home. She yanked his hands and he fell again. They staggered down the hill. The house looked like it had been twisted in opposite directions from the center, like a half-turned Rubik's Cube. A maple had grown through the back porch and bent over the roof. Smoke spiraled up from the chimney, which was crumbling and leaning in the opposite direction of the house. The windows were glazed in a call of ice, and a shutter creaked back and forth on its hinges like an oscillating fan. They went in. The front door was crooked and the house shifted and bowed under his footsteps. The walls were decayed and peeling like skin. In the beams of light filtered through the tattered curtains, he saw rats crisscross on the countertops. Something dark slipped across his boot and disappeared in the shadows with liquid grace. 
the little girl began to hum this little light of mine. She skipped ahead into the living room and said, In here, reindeer. Where's your mom and dad? Skylar said. He jerked forward. Backlit by the fire on the hearth, she giggled and sang, Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. The wind gripped the house and shook it. The shutter slammed against the sill. He jumped and looked around. You can sit down, she said, and he heard her moving around in the dark. He eased into a dusty chair that wobbled under his weight. She poured something and appeared out of the shadows with a coffee mug. He watched her face, her dirt-smudged cheeks and runny nose, a missing front tooth. She handed him the mug. Coco, she said, and winked. Still humming, she slipped a moldy gray blanket around his shoulders. She stepped back into the dark. Your parents? He said again, his words cutting out. He cupped the mug in both hands, felt the heat in his palms. He took a drink and his chest warmed. You ought not wander around out there by yourself, she said. There's bears, you know. He took a drink, never taking his eyes off her. The house shook again and popped. The shutter slammed. He pulled the blanket tight and held it under his chin. What's your name? He said, his voice stronger. She said, Want to hear a story? She stoked the logs in the fire and it lit up the room. And there it was. Four charred spots in the floor, burned straight through the boards into the ground. His throat went dry, skin needled and detached from everything it held inside. One upon of the time, she said, giggling, there was a beautiful princess. This is the Otis house, ain't it? He said, unable to take his eyes from the floor. It's really real. And one day the princess was captured by a mean old dragon and locked in a fiery dungeon. How? He said, and his voice was weak again. She stepped out of the shadows, still smiling, and said, One day, a handsome prince arrived at the dragon's den to rescue the princess. And a fleshy bubble pulsed and formed under her right eye and wormed down her face, dropped in a hot pucker mark on the floor. Her hair singed at the ends of her curls, hissed, and began to blacken in spirals to her scalp. More bubbles rose, shiny in the light, and slid off and onto the floor. He tried to move, but was frozen. Her lips peeled back in a gap-toothed grimace. Steam wavered around her. And he told the dragon, Release the princess dragon, or face the blade of my sword. He swallowed, starting to shiver. You're dead, he said barely a whisper. She stopped talking. Then, her voice dragging slower and slower like a damaged audio tape, said, I'm not dead, silly, and disappeared. His breath caught. He looked down and his hands were cupped, holding nothing. He looked back up and there was no house, no darkened living room or fire in the hearth, no charred floor, only snow and thickets and trees that all looked the same. Sitting on the ground, half covered from the blizzard, there wasn't even a moldy blanket draped around him. Sometime, anytime. Skylar huddled against a large oak, 
between its flanges that opened out into thick roots. Eyes closed, face pale and puffy. From somewhere far away, he heard the faint growl of a boat motor on the river, but he didn't open his eyes. He'd just sit a while and wait, stay here and rest a little longer, because he knew sometimes boats weren't boats at all. Sometimes you heard boats like you saw old houses and little girls humming in the woods. He'd just stay here and relax, listen to the seagulls screech in the warmth of the sun, smile at his mom and dad sitting in beach chairs behind him, laughing and sipping margaritas, together and happy. Maybe he and his dad would toss the frisbee along the beach. So what if there was a boat? There'd be more. There was always more. There were boats and boats, and he could sail away any time, toward the sun deflating into the horizon where it watered off to somewhere, anywhere. But now he just wanted to sit in the surf and curl his toes in the warm sand, listen to the waves hiss and burst, let the salty water foam in and over and around him, and slip silver back into the sea. Really, it could wait. He was warm now. Even the shivering had stopped. That was Kevin Brown's Somewhere Anywhere, as read by Anthony Babington. Anthony Babington is an aspiring voice actor who looks just slightly off from how he sounds. From his secret volcano lair in Minnesota, he narrates podcasts and leases his soul to corporate America. He is previously recorded for Far-Fetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and The Cursed Inn Podcast. He can be found on Twitter as at Aleph Baker. Thank you, Anthony. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. 
Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we dive deeper into the abyss with more Tales to Terrify. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.